Good morning, everyone. Welcome to our service on this very, very lovely day. <clears throat> We're happy to see those of you that are here. We'll have to sing cheerfully and loudly in order to make up for those of them who are not here. So let's stand and worship God together.
Thank you, music team. Appreciate you uh, opening our service with those songs that brought our uh, focus to our God and to a place of hopefully worship before Him. Probably don't say this often enough, probably have never said it. Thank you, Emily, for playing bass guitar. It adds a lot. I appreciate you doing that. Our call to worship is in our bulletins. It's taken from Psalm 115, verse 1 and verse 11. And uh, we want to read that together. There's a reason why we started reading this out loud together. Uh, call of worship is there just to bring our focus on where it needs to be coupled with the songs we've just sung, and now we'll be looking to this passage just to bring our focus to God and where our focus needs to be as we go into our worship service. So if we read it together, we're kind of hoping, it's not a guarantee, but uh, the hope is that all of us together, collectively, uh, will get our minds into this spot. 
So let's read it together. Our call to worship. Not to us, Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. All you who fear the Lord, trust the Lord. He is your helper and your shield. Let's bow down in prayer. Lord, we come today to give you the glory and to do your name. We don't have any glory to appeal to. You're the one that deserves all the glory. And we want to say that we trust you. And as we come to this worship service, we humbly bow before you in worship. And as we listen to your word and unite our hearts in prayer and sing your praises, uh, we trust that you would, you would give us the feeding that we need here this morning. We give the service over to you and ask your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Curtis. Scripture reading today is from Acts 19, 1-20. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly for about three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and, the, and Paul know, I know about you, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power.
Thank you, Curtis. I came across a video clip uh, on YouTube a while back about uh, perpetual motion. You know, that idea that something can run indefinitely on its own power, it's called perpetual power, or perpetual motion, um, which is, naturally speaking, an impossibility. Their perpetual motion is impossible. It just defies all the laws of physics, so it, it cannot happen. Everything needs some kind of outside power source to keep it going. So in this video clip that I saw, it was just this wooden platform, um, had, had a hole in it, and it was on a stand of four metal rods holding this platform up off this stand. Underneath this hole was a kind of a metal track that uh, was made of metal rods, and it went all the way down from this platform right down to the level of the stand, and then it kind of curved back up, and it came up up over top of that platform. And the marble was placed on that platform and kind of rolled down, fell down that hole, followed the track all the way down, curved back up and then shot the marble back up on top of the platform where it fell down the hole again and went down and just kept on going over and over and over again. Perpetual power, perpetual motion. And as I thought, looked at that, I thought, well, that's pretty amazing. Hmm. That's a picture of perpetual motion, but that's impossible. But this gadget was doing it. And uh, as I thought about it, I, I was getting suspicious. There's something going on here that is beyond my sight that I can't see. And that's what I want us to think about here this morning as we think about that story. That's what that story illustrates. Something going on that we can't see on the surface. Something underneath that is not immediately visible. And sure enough, quite a while later, I came across another YouTube video uh, clip that revealed what was going on behind the scenes. And I discovered, as uh, this person doing this video clip was explaining it, and he showed that there was a battery-operated motor concealed in the base of that stand that when the marble got to its lowest level, it uh, gave it marble a bit of a boost to get it up <laughs> over top on top of that platform. But that was all cleverly concealed inside that, the base of this, of this gadget. So you couldn't see what was going on. Have you ever been in a situation or observed something where you just have to conclude that what you're seeing and what is happening just doesn't make sense and you have to conclude that there is something going on behind the scenes? There has to be. Likely all, all of us have seen that or observed that kind of a situation. And the passage we come to today in our study through the book of Acts shows this very plainly. From what we've already seen in our study through the book of Acts, Jesus gave his disciples the task of being witnesses to the people of the world. That was back in, right in the beginning, chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus just before he was ascended, told the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall be my witnesses in both Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So right there we see that the power of the Holy Spirit 
needs to be behind us being witnesses for Jesus. And as we've continued through the book, we've seen several times, that's been kind of the theme of the sermon several times through the book of Acts, that Jesus Christ is in charge of getting the gospel message out to the world. Yes, we need to obey the command. But as we do that, Jesus uses us to get the message out. Jesus is the one who directs as to where and when and how. And the Holy Spirit does his work of convicting and opening hearts and minds to the truth as we obey Jesus in doing our part of sharing the gospel. So while outwardly Christians go about sharing the gospel with others, and some of them will recognize the truth and accept Jesus as Savior, and, and then superficially, it looks like it is all a human endeavor, a human accomplishment. We think of all the mission organizations that have been started and going through the years, and many of them still going, and the work they're doing in this country and that country, and the amount of effort and strategy and planning and fundraising and all that that goes into all of that. It can look like a human endeavor. But really, when it comes right down to it, there's something going on underneath. There's something going on behind the scenes that will make it effective. And that something is the supernatural power of God at work. So that's what we see in this passage we come to today that Curtis just read. Acts 19 verses 1 to 20. I kind of had to chuckle. Um, a couple weeks ago, uh, when Bonnie was in Canberra picking up music for last Sunday, <laughs> Bonnie asked me, what's your sermon going to be in the next Sunday? Because I'm going to be gone all week, and so if I can know the sermon ahead of time, I could pick out songs appropriate for today. And I said, I don't know, I haven't looked at that passage yet. So I quickly went and looked at this passage, and I thought, oh my goodness, <laughs> I have no idea where I'm going to go with this. <laughs> Great songs this morning, by the way. <laughs> so far, it went, went very well. So it's an interesting passage, very interesting passage here. Uh, but what we see behind it, as I studied it, what came out to me was the power underneath, the power going on behind the scenes. As Paul preaches the gospel, Jesus uses his power to do some amazing things, resulting in many people there at Ephesus becoming Christians. So let's quickly go through this text and to come to an understanding of what went on here, and then we'll look at the application. So last week, you remember, we saw Paul start his third missionary journey. He was headed for Ephesus, but he stopped off at uh, some places where he had planted churches on previous missions to encourage those believers. And then Luke, the writer of this book, he took some time to tell us about Apollos. And that's where we looked last week, that first, uh, or the end there of chapter, um, chapter 18. Very gifted man, was mighty in the scriptures. God used him greatly there in Ephesus and then later on in Corinth. We looked at all that last week. We gleaned some good truths about the importance of the scriptures and gaining an accurate understanding of the scriptures. So now as we start chapter 19, Luke picks up the story again of the Apostle Paul on his third missionary journey. Verse 1. While Apollos was doing his thing there in Corinth, uh, Paul arrived there in Ephesus. And he ran into a group of disciples, verse 7 says there was 12 of them, and in talking with them, verse 2 and 3 and so on, uh, he found that they were missing some things in regard to their faith in Jesus. They had not received the Holy Spirit when they believed, 
In fact, they told Paul they hadn't even heard there was a Holy Spirit. Probably a more accurate translation would be that they hadn't heard that the Holy Spirit had been given. So they were unaware of what happened on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people. On the disciples there in that upper room. And so Paul asked, well, what were you baptized in then? And they said, well, the baptism of John the Baptist. So, now, this is sounding very familiar, isn't it? Uh, we saw that last week with Apollos. Apollos, gifted though as he was, he hadn't heard the full story of, of Jesus. He was just familiar with the baptism of John the Baptist. So, we saw last week, Priscilla and Aquila uh, took Apollos aside and told him the rest of the story about Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit of Pentecost, and so on, about being baptized in the name of Jesus. So, it could well be that these 12 disciples that Paul is talking about here were, had heard Apollos preach before he heard the full story, and so that, that's as far as they got. <coughs> Excuse me. So at any rate, Paul told them the complete story of Jesus, filled in the missing information that they weren't aware of, and the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and then he baptized them in the name of Jesus. Those are two very different baptisms, the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of, of Jesus. We looked at that at that last week. The baptism of John the Baptist was a preparatory thing. Uh, that was a baptism of repentance for sin in preparation for the coming of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Baptism of Jesus is realizing, yes, the kingdom of heaven has come now with Jesus. He died, he rose again. Our salvation is based in him and him alone. So being baptized in the name of Jesus means that you have accepted that and you have placed your faith in Jesus. You have opened your heart to allow Jesus to regenerate you and change you. So it's two totally different baptisms. Uh, so Paul explained that to them. And then baptized in the name of Jesus. And then these disciples too received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit then came on them. And they began speaking in tongues. That's interesting. We'll come back to that. Paul then began his usual method of speaking in speaking the gospel of Jesus in the synagogue. As the passage goes on, you see that. Paul went to the synagogue, spoke the gospel, Jesus is the Messiah that the Old Testament scriptures have prophesied about and have foretold. Jesus is the fulfillment of that prophecy. He is the Messiah that has come to us. Salvation is now through him and him alone. So he taught that in the synagogues for a period of three months teaching that Jesus was the Old Testament promised Messiah. But as happens all every time, <laughs> we've seen it happen over and over again as we've gone through Acts, inevitably, the opposition from the Jews at the synagogue there started to mount. And so the result was that Paul left the teaching, left teaching in the synagogue and went to, says, the school of Tyrannus. I noticed that Curtis, when he read it, um, he it said, your lecture hall, I think it, I think it said lecture hall of, of Tyrannus. We don't know anything about this Tyrannus or his school. Uh, likely, as that translation that Curtis read from, uh, likely it was a lecture hall uh, where this Tyrannus guy taught whatever philosophy he was teaching. But Paul apparently made arrangements to use that building or rent that building for a few hours or certain hours every day. And so he started doing his teaching there. And the Jews who did believe in Jesus left the synagogue with Paul and went with him meeting there at this lecture hall. 
So this arrangement continued on, it says, for two years. And in that time, verse 10 tells us that all the province, in those two years, all the, in the province of Asia, heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So not, it wasn't just the city of Ephesus, who, that was a very important city in the province of Asia, but all throughout the province of Asia had heard the gospel in these two years. Then verse 11 through 20, fill us in on some of the details of what went on during those two years. Some of the things that were going on while Paul was speaking and preaching and doing his work of evangelism in Ephesus over those two years. And we find there, as you read the rest of this passage, that it was a period of remarkable moving of Jesus and the Holy Spirit. In the sense that there was a lot of miraculous stuff going on in conjunction with Paul's preaching. Verse 11 says, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Then, I don't know if any of you have the New Living Translation, but the New Living Translation says, God was performing unusual miracles. Uh, the old King James Version says, special miracles. And it's important for us to see here that what was going on in verses 11 through 16, as you read that, was extraordinary. It was unusual. It was special. And Luke records it for that very reason, because it was so unusual and remarkable and special. And, Paul, and Luke, as he records it, makes sure we understand that this is unusual. This wasn't the norm. During the days of the apostles, the gospel message, as it was preached for the first time, was often accompanied by signs and wonders. God did that during the apostolic age, the age of the apostles, to confirm that indeed the gospel message was from, from him. It was from God himself. But even in this time, when signs and wonders were often seen in conjunction with the preaching of the gospel by the apostles, what happened here was unusual. It was over and above what, what was going on normally at that time. It was extraordinary. It wasn't the norm. So that, that's important to understand. It will help us, I think, to understand a bit, as we think about this, understand a bit about the city of Ephesus. That old city of Ephesus there is no longer inhabited. Um, it was right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. There was a port there um, because of over the couple thousand years that have happened or gone by since then because of the silting of the river or whatever, that place where that city was is now seven miles away from where the Mediterranean coast is now. Uh, so there's nobody living there, that old city anymore. It's no longer inhabited. But at this time when, when this was going on, it was the most important city in the Roman province of Asia. It wasn't the capital, but it was the most important city. It was a religious center as the temple to the pagan goddess Artemis was located there. That temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. The worship of Artemis, that pagan goddess, consisted of much idolatry, much immorality. We're going to see that next week. But it was a very major temple and a very major center. It was also a very significant commercial center for the province of Asia as well. So Ephesus was a happening city. That was, it, it was... A very important city. And it was also, according to one commentator I read, it was a hotbed of Eastern magic and superstition. So there's lots of sorcerers and magicians around doing all kinds of magic stuff. There seemed to be a fringe element 
of Jews traveling around, supposedly performing miracles, and most importantly, casting out demons. They were exorcists. And they're kind of a fringe element of the Jews. There wasn't come, come out of mainstream Judaism by any means. They're kind of a fringe element. But uh, a lot of people held them in high esteem because the Jews, they had a powerful God, supposedly, as so the legends went. And uh, they could invoke this name of, of their God, which was not an... So they had more power than other people. So it, it was all bogus, but, it, but that was kind of the feeling. So these, there was a fringe of Jewish people that would go around doing this. And... Uh, Ephesus seemed to be a place where they were active. They managed to capture or tap into the superstitions of the people. So that it's in that setting then that these unusual miracles and events were taking place. It's almost as if in that setting God was doing unusual things to show that he is more powerful than the forces at play there in Ephesus with all the magicians and sorcerers and so on going on. And that the gospel message is from him to show that he, the one only true God, is the one and only true God. And this is my message. This is God's message. This gospel of Jesus Christ is the message. So, we have that report there, verse 12. That pieces of handkerchiefs and aprons that had been in contact with Paul were carried to the sick and to the demon-possessed, and the sickness left, and the demons left, just with contact with that cloth. And then there are these seven sons of Sceva. They were those Jewish exorcists I was telling you about. Sceva was a Jewish high priest, or at least he claimed to be. I'm not sure if it actually was or not, or it was just a bogus claim of his. But... These sons of Sceva, they would go from place to place exercising demons. And here, likely because they observed God working through the Apostle Paul in casting out demons, they realized, okay, there's a power going on with Paul here that, that we don't have. There's something more here. And so they attempted to use the name of Jesus as well. And in their attempt to cast out evil spirits. In verse 13, they were trying to cast the demon out of this guy, and they said, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. And that's a head shaker. Yeah. They were not believers in Jesus, these sons of Sceva. They didn't believe in Jesus. They had just seen Paul, by the power of the name of Jesus, cast out demons. So they thought, oh, that's the secret of the power, this name of Jesus. So they tried to do the same thing. They thought that phrase, in the name of Jesus, was kind of like a magical incantation. Uh, that if you spoke that phrase, the supernatural power would, would obey you. Uh, there was no understanding of the truth at all in them. So they obviously failed. <laughs> the demon responded, uh, I, I recognize Jesus. I've heard about Paul. I know about Paul. Who are you? And so the demon-possessed man leaped on the sons of Sceva and subdued all of them. And they fled from that house naked and wounded. Uh, these sons of Sceva were tampering with forces beyond their knowledge, and they paid for it. But this event had an impression on the people of the city. Verse 17, it says, the name of Jesus was magnified. People recognize, you don't mess with the name of Jesus. <laughs> the name of Jesus was honored, was lifted up because of this event. 
So the result was, of all of this, was that there was a great turning to Jesus here in the city of Ephesus. If you look at verses 18 through 20. Many of those sorcerers and the people who practiced magic, they believed in Jesus. And they repented and turned from their sin and placed their faith in Jesus. And in accordance with that, as a sign of their repentance, their belief, they, they disclosed their practices and they brought all their books on magic and sorcery and all the par- likely all the paraphernalia that went with it, associated with their practices, and they burned it all in public. Big public bonfire there. And uh, Luke takes time to note there in verse 19 that the value, the value of all this stuff came to 50,000 pieces of silver. It's hard to say exactly what that would be in today's figures. Um, I checked several different sources and most of them would reveal it would be in the $4 million mark in that area. So that must have been quite a fire <laughs> as they burned all this stuff. So our section for this morning wraps up with verse 20, telling us that the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing there in Ephesus. It was gaining ground. The word of the Lord was gaining ground. It was overcoming the forces of Satan and his demons in that city. So that's the story of these verses. Let's take a look at the application for us today. We need to understand the divine nature of evangelism. The divine nature of evangelism. The power that goes on underneath or behind the scenes. We can better understand this by looking at the implications that come out of what's recorded here in these verses of Acts 19, 1-20. So the first thing I see here is the role of the Holy Spirit. The role of the Holy Spirit. We've seen this truth before in the book of Acts. Right back at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 7-8, to 8, passage I referred to earlier. Jesus told his disciples to stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit came. Because when the Holy Spirit came, he would give them power to be his witnesses. So the implication is that they can't be effective witnesses without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is is the power behind their witness. And we see this again come out here in this passage with that incident there with those 12 disciples in verses 1 through 7. Uh, They heard the story of Jesus. They believed the story of Jesus, but they had incomplete knowledge. They hadn't been told the whole story. They knew nothing about the Holy Spirit, or if they did, they did not know that the Holy Spirit had been given. They were believers in the sense that they believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but they hadn't heard the whole thing. They hadn't heard about that event of Pentecost. And so they knew knew nothing about being baptized in the name of Jesus. So Paul filled them in on their missing knowledge. And then they were baptized in the name of Jesus. Obviously they believed Paul's message. It all kind of came together for them. And and, uh, they placed their faith in Jesus. were baptized in in the name of Jesus. And then the Holy Spirit came on them as evidenced by their speaking in tongues and prophesying. So this is the exact same thing as happened on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down on the disciples there in the upper room and they all started speaking in tongues. Now some perhaps are wondering about this phenomenon of speaking in tongues upon receiving the Holy Spirit. 
The book of Acts records three times where the Holy Spirit came upon a group of people as evidenced by speaking in tongues. The first is in chapter 2, verse 4, the day of Pentecost, which we just referred to. The second is in Acts chapter 10, when Peter preached to the household of Cornelius. Uh, and when, as they heard the story, the Holy Spirit fell on them and they spoke in tongues. And then this, this passage here is the third one. Uh, it's not recorded in the book of Acts as happening any other time. As I've said before, when the message of the gospel was first preached in that first generation, right after the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus Christ, and the apostles went out and started preaching the gospel, that new, this gospel was something new. It was a brand new work of God, the beginning of the new covenant, if you like. Jesus had just died and rose again. So this was the new covenant that Jesus came to institute. A new work of God, if you like. So tongues was given as a sign that this message of God is from God. God gave them that gift of tongues when they believed in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit to show that this was indeed of God. First of all, for the Jews, it was a sign for the Jews there on the day of Pentecost to show them that this Jesus is the Messiah and this is the message and this message is from God, so the tongues was given to show the Jews that this was indeed from God. It was actually prophesied in the Old Testament when the New Covenant came that there would be people speaking in tongues. Second, in that Acts 10 passage, when the first Gentiles believed in Jesus, it was given as, again as a sign from God. It was a sign to those Gentiles that they that God had received them as well. This gospel message wasn't just for the Jews, it was for Gentiles too. So the tongues were given as a sign that the Gentiles are included in this. And it was also a sign for Peter and the other apostles that, yeah, look at this. God is obviously receiving Gentiles too, not just us Jews. This gospel is for Gentiles. And Gentiles, they don't have to become Jews to become Christians. God sends the Holy Spirit on them when they place their faith in Jesus. Just like he did for us at, at, at Pentecost. So Peter needed, and the, the apostles needed to see that sign. So that sign of tongues was given to show that the Gentiles were included in God's plan of salvation. And it wasn't, they didn't have to become Jews, though. they just had to place their faith in Jesus and accept him by faith. So the tongues were given to show that, and they needed to see that. And this occasion here in Acts chapter 19, again, seems to be a special sign for these 12 disciples and also for the people of Ephesus, that this gospel message was indeed from God Almighty, as opposed to the magic and sorcery that was going on around them. <laughs> and also, this church in Ephesus, we know as we look ahead, well, for us it's looking back, but <laughs> from this point, when Luke is writing this and recording this, for them looking ahead, Ephesus would, in the years following, become a lead church in the Gentile world. And this sign of tongues was God's indication that this work was from him. So, it would be a mistake to conclude from these three isolated incidents that this is to be the norm for all Christians. That's not what the Bible is saying. It doesn't, we can't 
glean from this that when people believe in Jesus and receive the Holy Spirit, that that will always be accompanied by speaking in tongues. That's not what this is saying. That's not what the Bible says. The three incidents recorded here in Acts are one-time events given to corroborate the message of the gospel when it was first being preached, along with the signs and wonders, the miracles, which we're going to look at in the next point. And after that was established, and the gospel was established, there would be no more need for these, for that particular sign. What we do see, though, and this is what I want us to see, what we do see is the work of the Holy Spirit in the work of evangelism. They needed the Holy Spirit. Those 12 disciples that Paul met up with, they needed the Holy Spirit. This whole work is powerless without the Holy Spirit. So Paul made sure they had full knowledge of Jesus and when they heard the whole story they believed the story and fully placed their faith in Jesus and they were baptized in the name of Jesus and they received the Holy Spirit. Friends, for us today we need to understand the role of the Holy Spirit in this endeavor of obeying Jesus and telling the story of Jesus to those who need to hear it. We need to do that. But in doing that, we need to recognize that without the whole power of the Holy Spirit behind it, it will not be effective. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can open people's minds to understand the truth of the gospel. The Holy Spirit is the only one that can convict people of sin and their need to repent. That, that's beyond us. We can't do that. The Holy Spirit's the only one that can do that. Our job is to obey Jesus and be his witnesses. To tell others about him. Explain the truth of the gospel message to them. That's our job. But it is up to the Holy Spirit to take it from there and give people understanding and conviction and openness to the truth. That's something we can't do. So that shows us the divine nature of evangelism. Secondly, the occurrence of miraculous events. That's the second thing I see here. The occurrence of miraculous events. And we see here from verses 11 through 12, that there were extraordinary, unusual miracles going on there at Ephesus. God was doing these miracles by the hands of Paul in this city that was full of magicians and sorcerers, some of whom in all likelihood were were probably just illusionists, but there were others who were obviously working under satanic and demonic power and doing these supernatural things. In that setting, God was doing, God was working these amazing, unusual Powerful miracles. I brought your attention earlier to the fact that this was unusual. This wasn't the norm. Even in those apostolic times when signs and wonders were often accompanied the preaching of the gospel by the apostles, even in that time, what was going on here in Ephesus was very unusual. And as the rest of the New Testament plays out, and as church history since then has played out, these signs and wonders faded out with the establishment of the gospel and with the availability of the New Testament scriptures and writing for all Christians. Uh, Now now don't get me wrong. God still does miracles. (laughs) He always has. He always will. But they will be the exception and not the norm. As one person quipped, uh, if they happened all the time, they wouldn't be called miracles. They'd be called regulars. (laughs) 
Now that statement isn't totally accurate, but, <laughs> but it does get the point across. What I want us to see is who is it that does the miracles? Who did the miracles here? Verse 11. It wasn't Paul who did the miracles. It was God working through Paul. But what the miracle was, who it was for, and how it came about, that was the power of God. It didn't really have much to do with Paul at all, really. Except that Paul was obeying God and preaching the gospel. And then through Paul, God worked these miracles to show that his message was for him. And today as well, as in all times, when miracles happen, it's God that does it. It isn't by the power of any human. God at times will work through people who are doing his work and will perform a miracle. But it isn't any human that does it. It's God alone. And God seems to be the one who will decide who and when and where and why. <laughs> That's not up to us. God's the power behind it. But that brings us to the next point. The danger of being caught up in sensationalism. That's number three. The danger of being caught up in sensationalism. Uh, now this point doesn't fit very well with the outline. <laughs> Sorry about that. But it, it does come out in this passage and I think it needs to be addressed. People love things that are sensational. We're drawn to sensational things. That's why the news people will give an article or a news item the most sensational headline that they can dream up just to get people to read it. Because they get more readers if they can make it sound amazing and or controversial or something. So we see the headline and we are drawn to it and we read the article or we watch a video clip because, oh, oh look at this and big headline and... And then we realize it's nothing really that significant at all. It's really, it's really nothing. But it sounds sensational. That's why we do it. People love sensational stuff. Supernatural powers and displays of power are really sensational. That's why there are all these magicians and sorcerers at Ephesus. People love them. Because they're sensational. There was a sensationalism going on there that attracted people. And when God truly does do a miracle, that too is sensational. And people... Gets people talking and gets people ooing and aahing over what went on. But there's an inherent danger. The danger is to get caught up in sensationalism and to try to manipulate the supernatural powers to create a sensation. To try to gain some kind of power for yourself so you can wow others. Sons of Sceva in this passage illustrate that. They're trying to gain control over the power of Jesus so they could do supernatural things themselves like casting out demons. And they ended up trying to use the name of Jesus for their own purposes and they paid the price. They wanted to be sensational. So for us as Christians, and that's, that's a danger too. 
We read a passage in the Bible like this one here and we think, wow, isn't that amazing? Man, it would be nice to see that kind of thing going on today in our community. Wouldn't that be great if we could see these kind of miracles? How can we get God to do these kind of miracles here in Lashburn? How can we do that? Wouldn't that be great? Think of all the people we could get coming to our church if we could have all these miracles going. You see how easy it is to start thinking along these lines. And we end up thinking that there has to be a way that we can manipulate God into doing these miracles for us. If we just pray the right way. Maybe if we invoke the name of Jesus correctly. If we really believe and have enough faith, we can get God to do some miracles. <laughs> if we just hold hands and together and all say, I really believe, maybe we can get God to do something special. <laughs> just click our heels together three times and say, I really want, I mean, whatever. <laughs> That's the danger of sensationalism. Friends, if God does a miracle, and when God does a miracle, it will be up to him. He will decide when, and where, and for whom, and through whom. We can't tell God when to do a miracle, or what kind of miracle to do, or when to do it. Our job is obedience. To just obey him and follow his direction. Leave the miracles to him. Now, that doesn't mean we don't ask God. Of course. God has always told us to make our request known to him. So, yeah, there's nothing wrong with asking God to heal somebody or to ask God for to act or to work somehow in the way that we don't understand to bring something about. Nothing wrong in asking, asking that. But God is the one who's going to decide if you will do a miracle or not. God has his own purposes and his own wisdom and his own timing that is much beyond our thinking. Much higher than our thinking. So we can't tell God. We can ask. But we ask in faith and ask trusting in his wisdom and guiding hand and his timing. Just from my own experience over my years of pastoring, I've prayed for healing for people lots of times. Many, many times. And I can think of three, four, five occasions, maybe, <laughs> where God did a healing. The vast majority of time, no, there wasn't. God's plan for this world is, we live in a sin-fallen world where people get sick and die. <laughs> that's the norm. That's what happens. That's, that's because of the sin, sinful world we live in. That's what's going to happen. That's, God very seldom deviates from allowing that to happen because that's Part of God's plan for the age. Once in a while, he will perform a miracle. And I think of those times when God, when I prayed and God had performed a miracle, I can't think of a, anything different I did in praying for them versus praying for the person who was not healed. That's up to God. God is the one who decides that. It's not up to me. Not up to you. We can't manipulate God into doing stuff we want him to do. So let's beware of that danger of sensationalism. Fourthly, the work of conviction and repentance. We read at the end of this passage, verses 19 and 20, well, 18 to 20. 
that there was a tremendous response to the gospel message there in Ephesus. Verse 19 indicates, especially among the magicians and the sorcerers. With the preaching of the gospel confirmed by the miracles, and that event with the sons of Sceva, uh, those magicians and sorcerers were deeply convicted of their sin. They were truly repentant. They renounced their old ways. They came to Jesus, and the burning of their books and tools of magic was an indication of their true repentance. But when we look at the big picture, when we see that we see that even this was a divine work. We saw earlier that the conviction of, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Conviction is the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus taught that while he was on earth. Read the Gospel of John. And the Holy Spirit would come. He said, the Holy Spirit is going to come. And when he comes, he would convict people of their sin. Now, we as humans, we can put people on guilt trips. <laughs> Some are pretty good at that. My daughters always tell me that I am a master at laying guilt trips. <laughs> I don't think they meant to be complimentary, but that's what they told me. <laughs> that I was a master at laying guilt trips. But that's not the same thing as conviction. It's not the same thing as a deep, heartfelt conviction of sin that leads to true, genuine repentance. That's something only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. So we see in this passage that some who heard the message of the gospel from Paul, they didn't repent. Look at the first part of the chapter. Some of those Jews, they did not repent. They weren't convicted. Nor if they were, they chose to harden their hearts to it. And they hardened themselves to the message of the gospel, verse 9 says. That's why Paul left the synagogue, because they didn't respond. But there were others who were open and experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit and truly repented. Same message, same preacher, Opposite results. What we need to see from this is that even in this area of conviction and repentance, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Our job is to obey Jesus in telling others about him. How people respond to that is out of our hands. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And when people do respond, it is because of the Holy Spirit working in them through the message that we share with them. Again, an indication of the divine nature of evangelism. In the process of evangelism, we have a job to do, but if people are convicted of sin and repent, it's because there's a power going on underneath that is beyond us. That is at work, that is at play here. So therefore we see from this passage the indications and the implications of the divine nature of evangelism. Number one, the role of the Holy Spirit. Number two, the occurrence of miraculous events. Three, the danger of being caught up in sensationalism. And number four, the work and conviction of the, uh, the work of conviction and repentance. So we as Christians, we need to be aware of this. And work with God on this. And not try to take things into our own hands. Our role is to treat others with godly love. And tell them about Jesus and what he did to provide salvation from the penalty of our sin. And that's pretty much it. That's our role. If people respond and turn to Jesus, 
great, but it will be because there's a power working behind the scenes in their hearts. And that's the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. It won't be because of us. So we need to be faithful in doing our part and not try to do God's part for him. And allow him to do what he does, when and where and with whom, at his, at his choosing. So let's just take our time of silence. I hope I've <laughs> presented this passage well. I feel a little disjointed about it, but <laughs> let's take our time of silence and just open your hearts to the power of the Holy Spirit in you, in me, in the sense of what is God trying to say to me here this morning? I'll just give you a few moments. Amen. Music team, please. Let's stand and sing together. <coughs>
take refuge in you. Yeshua, I find comfort in you. You alone are God, my deliverer. In the shelter of your arms, I hide. I take refuge in you. Messiah, I find comfort in you. steadfast love will find a place of refuge in you. Turn to me and be gracious to me, Lord. Touch my heart for singing. 